Pastor Danny is gone this week. He's at a conference, so I'm going to pinch it for him. Had the opportunity a couple weeks ago. I got to get a couple props here. Talk with my buddy, Little Perry Hazelwood. Many of you know Little Perry. He grew up in the church, and he came to me, and he got married yesterday. He was asking, uh, hey, would you be able to do my wedding? Brought his fiance in to meet with me. Her name is Lauren, sweet girl. I said, man, I love weddings. I absolutely love them. Such a great illustration of the relationship we're supposed to have with God. I mean, I'm just so excited for you. He said, will you do my wedding? I said, no. <laughs> Not going to happen. And, uh, and so that obvious contradiction kind of floored him a little bit, but I already had two weddings that I was scheduled to do yesterday. I said one at two and one at four. I didn't, didn't know how I was going to be able to fit him in. Contradictions are around us. Sometimes we run into them. Uh, one of my favorites, a lot of them, occur in the food industry. I went out to lunch with a guy Friday. He ordered boneless ribs. I thought that was the idea of the rib was that it was the bone. You can get a boneless rib. Starburst has that big ad campaign where they have Starburst as a juicy contradiction. It's a solid candy. You bite it. It's supposed to be juicy. My, well, not my favorite, but the one I run into the most, I guess I go through the fast food place, go through the drive-thru, and I order whatever double cheeseburger value meal they have, supersized, big fries, and a Diet Coke because... I like Diet Coke. I don't think they cancel each other out. So, you know, you, you saw some of the contradictions we were talking about in the video, the idea of being apathetic versus being enthusiastic, the idea of being rigid versus being flexible, about being critical versus being peaceful and passionate. And this is another one of my favorite. Uh, you guys know what this is called? This, I stole this off my kid's Lego table. Um, if it was for a girl, it would be called a doll. But for a boy, it's called an action figure. Well, here's the deal. If I set him down and tell him to do something, go. Go. No action in that figure whatsoever. <laughs> All the action's got to come from me. I've got to put the action in there. So, so that's the problem you see with some contradictions. And, and very honestly, as we're going to talk about it today, I think that's sometimes the problem we see in the church. You look at some things like boneless ribs and you go, man, that's just not right. Jumps out at you. But the truth is sometimes how we act and how we live as the church, as individual Christ followers, I think that's an obvious contradiction to the things that we're supposed to be about, the things that we say we're passionate about. As believers in Christ, we're supposed to be disciples who are making disciples. Our mission statement here at the church is that we would be about knowing him and making him known. So if you're in a relationship with God, it's by grace through faith in his son Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you know the things that you're supposed to be doing. You want to know him and make him known. But what if I would go to you, anybody in, in the body, and say, hey, you know, what do you think your spiritual gift is? And you'd say to me, oh, it's teaching. Man, I love teaching and study. I just love to really be filled with God's word. And I'd say, man, that is so exciting. That is so encouraging because, you know, we're called to go. Great Commission tells us, you know, Acts 1-8, go, be my witness. You know, that is really great because that probably really equips you to be able to explain the gospel very, very clearly. And that's a hard thing to do. And so that really must help you there. And what if that person responded to me with some of the Christianese that Dan offered us last week? Ah, I don't know. I don't really feel led to reach out to my neighbors. You know, you see, I don't really feel called to go to unreached people. And that person becomes a contradiction. I've heard this a bunch of times in my life. You may have heard it too. This is a lot of people's big problem with the church, with organized religion, is they run into people who say they're Christians. They profess, profess faith in Christ, but then their lives are obvious contradictions. 
And a lot of times it's not somebody who has a lot of Bible knowledge who's not willing to reach out. It's somebody who says, hey, I'm a Christian, but you know they steal cable TV. Hey, I'm a Christian, but they cheat on their taxes. Hey, I'm a Christian, but they're rude, you know? Whatever it is, and we see those things. And you give that kind of person a name. You know what the name is. It's a hypocrite. Well, then that introduces a whole new problem. Hey, aren't you judging that person? I've heard this said before. I don't know if it's true. If you ask anybody, hey, what's the most quoted verse in the Bible? Most folks say John 3.16. Love the verse. It's the, the whole gospel in one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not die. They'll have eternal life. But I've been hearing that that verse has been replaced. And the most quoted verse anymore, I don't think a lot of people even know where it is, is this one. Judge not lest you be judged. You know, the truth is, when we look at that, if you took the entire verse in context, that's really not what that passage is saying. You get kind of a different sense. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage in Matthew 7 is teaching, don't judge hypocritically. What if I walked up to any one of you here in the body with some health care advice, some suggestions on how to lose weight? How would that look? I can't do that. That'd be ridiculous. If you're going to offer somebody some counsel, though, some suggestions, you're not necessarily judging that person. What if you're just trying to help them discern? What if you're trying to maybe point out a blind spot in their life? We need to make some judgments in this world. You probably remember this years ago, Michael Jackson, when he was still alive, he got a lot of flack. He dangled one of his children over a balcony in a hotel he was staying at. People were in an uproar over it, and they should have been. Tremendously irresponsible act. As long as you're a person who doesn't put your own kids in harm's way, you need to call him out on something like that. So that's the idea of the log and the speck. If I went out for lunch with any one of you after church today and we're sitting there and you order dessert and I look down at my nose and go, <laughs> I mean, I can't do that. I eat way too much dessert. It doesn't work that way. We can look at those obvious examples, but, but it's a little different when we're talking about judging somebody's spirituality. Because in order to make an assessment of somebody else's spirituality, I've got to be willing to look at my own relationship with God first. I was really challenged last week by the message that Dan gave. And basically at the end, he asked that question. You kind of saw it in the video. If everyone in the church looked just like me, what kind of church would we have? And I think Dan's point was more in the line of, you know, if everybody gave like me and served like me and reached out like me, what would it look like in order to challenge us to figure out how we're pouring into the church, how we're getting plugged in and connected? But the question really stuck with me, I think, for a different reason. As leadership in the church, as I'm an elder and, and have sat in elder meetings and sat in pastoral staff meetings, we've talked about what does it look like for us to grow the church? And when we talk about that, we're talking about growing spiritually, about embracing the vision that God has given us. Are we reaching out? Are we serving the way we need to? But then also, because of our purpose statement, which we draw from Colossians 1.28, it says we want to proclaim Christ in order to present people complete. So we thought, don't we need to grow the church numerically so there'd be more people to present complete? For that to take place, for us to grow numerically that way, I believe what we'd have to do is become a lot more comfortable with the person sitting next to you here on a Sunday not looking like you. For attendance at the chapel to really take off, 
we're not going to go over to other churches and ask if we can have some of their folks. One of the ways we have grown, and it's been really incredible to see, is so many young families and they're having kids, and that's really incredible. We got the Parenting for Christ conference coming up. I hope you get a chance to go to that. You know, that's a neat thing to see. We can start discipling in our own home. But the idea is that's a pretty slow growth process. To really explode as a church, to really explode numerically, it had happened if we all started embracing the vision. And we went out to those around us that we encounter, our coworkers, fellow students at school, people we run into at the gym and the grocery store, and we started sharing Jesus with those people, and they accepted Christ. And then we'd want to plug them in to a church where they'd get biblical teaching, where they'd get support and encouragement and those kind of things, fellowship that we want to offer here. And so that's where God's challenged me this week, and maybe he'll challenge you too. It's the fact that I look at people and I make a judgment. And here's what I say. I say, man, I don't know if that person deserves my time my effort, my friendship. And you know what I'm really saying is, well, they don't deserve the gospel message. I've done that. (laughs) I'm telling myself a lot today. But I want to ask you, are there times when you feel like you might have done that too? When you've become too selective about who we want to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ? And so this week I've been asking myself, is it that these people don't deserve to hear about Jesus? Or is it that I don't want to be the one to tell them about it? And so we come back to this fact, this reality. Our lifestyle preaches. If I say I want to be all about sharing the gospel, knowing him and making him known, and I only do part of it, what does that make me? It's a great movie I saw many years ago. Tombstone, Wyatt Earp, and Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday lives a life far apart from Christ for sure, and he's a salty character. but, But he's getting ready to die, and he's on his deathbed, and he brings in a priest who says the last rites over him. As the priest leaves, Wyatt Earp's character comes in and Doc tries to make excuses for what, you know, the priest was doing there. And finally, he just says this. (laughs) He says, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. And it's true, I'm a hypocrite. My hypocrisy knows no bounds. Because here's the deal, hypocrisy teaches us one of two things about ourselves. Either what we say, we don't really believe. What we say isn't true. Either what we say we don't really believe or what we say isn't true. Which is it with the gospel? Is it not true that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Whoever believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life. Or it must be that I don't believe it because I'm not willing to go share it with someone because they don't look like me. It's pretty serious stuff today. How do we avoid becoming obvious contradictions in our obedience to God's call to be witnesses. What I want you to do is join me in the book of Acts. We're going to look at how God presents this through Dr. Luke. We're going to go to the book of Acts chapter 11. I'm going to look at verses 1 to 18. And on your outline, I've kind of rephrased this question into a problem for us to solve. The problem is just how far does the gospel extend? And so hopefully presenting it as a problem, maybe we can find a solution that's right there in the text. And we can dig out an application for all of us today. So we're going to look at Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. And the main character here is Peter. And his problem is the same as mine in Doc Holliday's. His hypocrisy knows no bounds. Let me read verses 1 to 3. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? 
The Jews can't believe it. They can't wrap their mind around this idea that Peter would make himself unclean for Gentiles. And what they're saying is really they can't fathom the notion that salvation that's by grace through faith in Jesus could really extend all the way to these people, the Gentiles. And so just imagine Peter, he's here and he's saying, man, I know, I hear you. I couldn't have imagined it myself, but this incredible thing has happened to me. And now, because of what God's doing in my life, I see things differently. And what we see here is Peter beginning to share his story. And, and like Peter, in typical fashion, he's kind of telling on himself. All of these things actually took place in Acts 10. But here in verses 4 to 8 of, verses of chapter 11, Peter says this. It says, Peter began speaking, and he proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, Well, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I'd fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, I said, oh, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And this is impulsive Peter just telling on himself regarding his hypocrisy. And so you have to ask as you're looking at, seriously, Peter, that, that's what you're going to lead with? No unholy or unclean thing has ever entered my mouth? If you dig into this passage just a little bit, it says back in Acts chapter 10 and verse 32, Peter is staying at the time of this event at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's staying with a guy who skins animal hides for a living. I'm sure that's a real clean place over there, Peter. But, but you could really cut to the chase and say, okay, Peter, this is what you're going to say. No unholy or unclean thing has ever entered your mouth, but yet you use that same mouth to deny the Lord three times. I think truly maybe what we're seeing here is the beginning of real evidence of Peter's growth. Because of the core of the gospel message, because of death, burial, and resurrection, what happens is that through Jesus, God has allowed us to redefine relationship. See, because of Jesus at this time, Peter gets it. Now Jews and Gentiles can eat at the same table. Now poor people and rich people can be at the same table. Now black people and white people can be at the same table because of Jesus. Saying the good news is available to everyone. And Peter learns that really here in chapters 10 and 11. What will it take for me to learn it? See, because this is how I've shared the gospel in my life. I'm just telling you the truth. I encounter somebody and sometimes I ask, well, I don't know, does that person have the right you know, socioeconomic background for me to share Jesus with them? That person from the right culture, they have the right cultural experiences. Sometimes I've asked this, this is embarrassing. Does that person have the mental capacity to really get Jesus? And you know what I'm really asking. I'm saying, hey, can this person find their salvation? Can this person find their salvation in looking like me? And if they just act like me and talk like me and look like me, then I'd feel comfortable sharing the gospel with them. I was so convicted of this just a few months ago. There's a young girl who works over here at the Rhodes, and God was so gracious and used me to present the gospel to her, and she accepted Christ. And, uh, and she was dating a guy who was a believer. Uh, didn't know that at the time. And they were going to get married, and she'd asked me if I'd do their wedding. Uh, but he was an over-the-road truck driver, and he was driving down in Texas, and he died. He didn't die in an accident. He just pulled over to take a break and, and went to sleep, and he never woke up again. And so, you know, they assume it was an aneurysm or a blood clot or something like that. And so she's devastated, and she comes to me and says, Hey, Pastor James, will you do his funeral? 
I mean, I'd met the guy once. They'd come and visit here at church and, and didn't know anything about him. But I was like, yeah, I'll do the funeral. I need you to get his family and his friends together. Come in and sit with me in my office and we'll talk about what you want the funeral to look like. And so they came over and they're standing in the lobby here at the church. And it was a big, big crowd of folks. And this big crowd of folks that didn't look like me. There were several of them smoking out there in the lobby. I didn't tell anybody. And uh, they, <laughs> a lot of them, I mean, there were, there were a lot of piercings and tattoos. And, and it was just a group of folks that didn't look like me. Now, I want to take one second just to, to give a little aside here. The Old Testament law commanded the Israelites not to get tattoos, to mourn the dead. But you understand clearly we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. The New Testament doesn't say anything about whether a Christ follower should or shouldn't get a tattoo. My belief, I'm just going to share this with you because we haven't sat and talked about this in an elders meeting. This hadn't come up in a staff meeting. Here's my belief on this. If you want to get a tattoo or a piercing and you're a Christ follower, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Here's what it says. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Look at that verse and ask, hey, am I doing this to the glory of God? The New Testament does not command against tattoos or piercings. It also doesn't tell you to get one. It doesn't make a real strong case for it. I've talked with people before about this a whole bunch of times, and I always reference 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. It doesn't directly apply to body art, but it says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's a question to ask. Am I glorifying God in my body? I'm not making a hard and fast case about this. Here, honestly, it says your body is a temple. My body is beginning to resemble a temple. And so I know that I eat too much. And so it's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to hold somebody accountable for getting a tattoo or a piercing when, when I know, you know, I'd be a hypocrite in that. I'm just saying, when this group of folks showed up and they're standing out in the lobby, they didn't look like me. So we sat and we planned the funeral. And actually, I got on this guy's Facebook site and looked at it, and it was incredible stories of him sharing the gospel in truck stops, and he had Bible verses on there, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm sad that I didn't get to know this guy, and he hung out with this really rowdy kind of crowd, and so we had the funeral the next day, and, and they wanted like five songs, and so there was a song, and I spoke a little bit, and song, and I prayed, and so, and so in the middle of the ceremony, there'd been a song playing, and I got back up to kind of finish the service, and there's a guy sitting right in the very front row, and he said out loud, he goes, this stinks. But he didn't say stinks. He said, he said another word that kind of sounds like stinks. But, but, you know, so here I got this problem. You know, what am I going to do? I, I could have moved on and pretended I didn't hear him, which would have been impossible, you know. I could have tried to kind of gloss it over. But somehow I really felt God telling me, hey, engage this guy. This guy's hurting. And so I stopped and I pulled away from my notes. And I said, here's the deal. <laughs> this does stink. I understand what you're saying. I could sit here and try and make you feel better about this. I could explain from the Scripture, real honestly, how I think that God allows things like this to happen. Scripture truly says he works all things together for good for those who love him. And and I could have done that. I could have made a good case for what theologians call the theodicy of evil. I could have done that, but it wouldn't have made him feel any better. That's the problem with that. Where he was right now, it was better to look at Romans 12, 15 that says rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. And so I did that, and we talked a little bit, and I finished the funeral. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. In the text here, Peter's telling on himself. He was being hypocritical when he said that earlier, and the text is incredible because here God gives us the solution to our problem. 
of asking just how far does the gospel extend? Does it extend all the way over here to the Gentiles? Does it extend all the way over here to the chain-smoking, tattooed, pierced group of folks who are hanging out in my office? What do you think? God engages us in the midst of our hypocrisy. He did it for me in that moment at the funeral. He does it for Peter right here in Acts. Let's look at the rest of this passage, verses 9 to 18. It says, But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and then everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. This is Cornelius that we read about in chapter 10. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who's also called Peter, brought here. And here's what he's going to do. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is Peter's confession right here, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they all quieted down and they glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to faith, to life. God engages Peter here and he shows him, hey, the barriers of true fellowship have been removed. They've been broken down for the goal of spreading the gospel. This is an exceptionally important event in the book of Acts. Go back this week and read chapter 10 on your own and you'll see it because we're kind of dropped into the middle of the story. But Peter's kind of along for the ride and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit prompts him to engage. I'm guessing here because I don't know. But but I, I do know, man, if I was in Peter's spot, I wonder what I'd do. Has that opportunity come to you before? Hey, I wonder, is there a way I could kind of get the message to those people without really, you know, diving in? Maybe I could give them a tract. I, I know, I, I could give that person a Bible. I could tell them, hey, don't worry about it. God loves you. But then I wouldn't have to dive in. No, what we see Peter doing here is diving in. He does the same thing we see Paul do later with the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 where he says he didn't want to just share the gospel, but share his life. It's the same thing we see really, really good parachurch organizations doing, like Young Life and Campus Outreach, where they go and they invest in people right where they are. And you know what? (laughs) This is what the church is supposed to be doing. And we know this for a fact because we see the creator and the founder, the builder and sustainer of the church doing this. He does it in practice all over the Gospels. We'll look at one event in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Simon sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Well, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus practiced this. Do you think even for one second he thought, well, I don't know. 
I'm pretty sure Matthew's supposed to be one of my disciples, but what are they going to say when I call this tax collector? You know, do you think he went over to Matthew's house and opened the door and stuck his head in and went, ooh, quite a few sinners in there. <laughs> I'm out of here. I bet, you know, he didn't do those kind of things. If that's my deal, I'm in trouble. And, and I'm telling you that I am today. Jesus did it in practice, but he also did it in doctrine. He did it, did it in core doctrine. We see this in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How am I going to show God's grace and truth to the world if I'm only willing to go to folks who look like me? I'm going to miss a whole lot of the world. So are we willing to engage with those around us who are different? I asked permission to tell the story on my son Gavin. Uh, Christine and I have homeschooled up until this point, and, and this is Gavin's first year going to public school. He's going to Central Junior High in seventh grade. And he's playing on the football team, and, uh, and there's lots of things we like about that. Uh, seventh grade and eighth grade team practice together, and, and they go to away games together, and they're in the locker room together. They play on separate teams. But one of the things that happens, and, you know, uh, not real proud of this, but this is just something that happens. The eighth grade kids kind of pick on seventh grade kids. That's not new. I think we knew that going in. But, but the neat thing, we've had the opportunity because we've been trying to pour into Gavin, help him be a light in a dark world sometimes. He had this opportunity where he's getting picked on a little bit, and he, he responded really, really well. I'm not standing up here to brag on him, but he responded really well to this. And I remember he came home, and he was talking with Christina, and he said, you know, the thing is, I'd never really understood what that verse was about in Scripture. It says you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, until now, I've never had any enemies. <laughs> Hadn't really been in that situation, but now he was. He was around people who were different from him, and it was a little uncomfortable. Are we willing to be uncomfortable? when we go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I mean, it's one thing, seriously, if you don't look like me, I understand that. But what if you do look like me? What if you're an American, but maybe you're homeless, so you don't smell like me? What if you drink? What if you do drugs? What if you have a pornography problem? All these things are out there. What if you don't know who John the Baptist is? What if you don't know who John Calvin is? If you don't know who John MacArthur is, am I, am I still willing to reach out to you? I think the solution for all of us is that God engages us in our hypocrisy. In our text, it says, Peter remembered what the Lord has said, that he is Lord over all, all people groups, no matter what, no matter what language they speak. We talked about that in the missions time today at 9.15. Salvation can be extended to everyone. Those people still have to make the choice of whether they'll accept it or not, but that's better than me making the choice about whether or not I'll even share it with them. Here in Acts chapter 11, what we see is the Gentile day of Pentecost. And I think it's a neat observation as you go back and read chapter 10 this week, Cornelius is all over it. But he's not even evident here in, verse, in chapter 11. There's just that one reference to him. And so I think what we get is this idea that that teaching's not just about one household. That's about crossing barriers. That's about erasing those barriers. And so it applies to everybody, no matter their geography or their race or their socioeconomic background. Dan asked that question last week, what if the church looked like me? And it blew me away. And not according to my level of involvement. I think that's still a very, very good question. That's a, that's a penetrating question. I think you'll come back to that. But just my conviction of the fact that I kind of like it when the church looks like me. Why am I not more concerned about that? Peter gets it here in Acts 11, and he asks, Who was I 
that I could stand in God's way. So the Gentiles were supposed to hear the message about the repentance that leads to life, and Peter almost stood in the way with that, oh, no unholy or unclean thing has ever entered my mouth. Where does that hit you today? If you really stop and wrestle with it, seriously, where? Who do we, by our actions, think is ineligible to receive the gospel? Up here telling on myself, you want to hear mine? Child molesters. People who hurt kids. I have a real issue there. And it's because God has taught me so much about what my relationship with him is supposed to look like through being a parent. And it's because he's given me four kids. They're his. But he's given me these four kids to raise. And so people who hurt kids, I don't want them to receive the gospel. I'm okay with alcoholics and drug users and pornographers getting the gospel. I'm okay with bank robbers hearing the good news, but not child molesters. Who's on your list? In my own hypocrisy, I've been challenged by the message of the gospel this week because in my depravity, God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me so that I could be reconciled to him. And here's the thing that God has taught me this week. I can stop forgiving others just as soon as Jesus stops forgiving me. I can stop forgiving others just as soon as Jesus stops forgiving me. And I'm preaching it today, but I'm telling you, I need help. I I don't have it all figured out. I need your help. I need God's help. I need the help of the church. Ask yourself, who have we become judge and jury for? Who would we say, man, there's no way that the incredible, unmerited, saving grace that a holy God lovingly and freely gives should apply to that person? Hitler, Osama bin Laden, the Virginia Tech shooter? And why is it that it shouldn't apply to them? Because they're not like me? Me and Doc Holliday. (laughs) My hypocrisy knows no bounds. I want to make this really, really clear, so I'm going to take a little aside here because I think it's important we talk about it. God does love us right where we are. He really does. But because of that great love, we see one of the major themes in Scripture come out, and that's there are blessings for obedience and there are consequences for disobedience. God loves us so much, He doesn't want to see us remain where we are. He wants to see us grow and mature and not be trapped in the snares of sin. There's a great story in the Gospel of John, and I won't have time to read it, but kind of going through it, I'll paraphrase it a little bit. Uh, it's, it's in John chapter 8. Probably wasn't originally uh, in the Gospel of John, but, but it's been declared authoritative by the Council of Trent. And, and I bet it's in your Bible. But in the story, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and the Pharisees bring before him this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And this scream set up job because they didn't bring the guy, they just bring the girl. And, and they're, they're trying to trick Jesus. And they say, hey, you know, the Moses, law of Moses says this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus stoops down, and he starts to write in the dirt. And I think this is incredible. And it's really, there's funny parts of this passage. But Jesus is so smart, he doesn't even say anything. And and, and this is the only recorded thing in Scripture of Jesus writing. And he doesn't even write on something that will end up on eBay, you know, years down the road. He just writes in the dirt. And we don't even know what he writes. But as he's writing, all the scribes and the Pharisees go away. And this is where it's funny to me. Jesus looks up and it's just him and the girl. And he goes, what? (laughs) Where'd everybody go? Like he didn't know what was going to happen. And he says, hey, has nobody left to condemn you? And she says, no. And he goes, okay, I don't condemn you either. All right, see you, bye. 
No, that's not what he says. I mean, he does say that. He says, hey, you know, it's great that nobody's condemned you. But he says, go, and this is the most important part, go and leave your life of sin. Sin no more, he says. Here's the deal, honestly. We can love and reach out to anybody that's not like us as long as we love them enough and are bold enough to share that God loves them so much he doesn't want to leave them where they are. It's okay to reach out to somebody with a drug problem. It really is. But don't reach out to them and say, oh, it's okay that you do drugs. That's not the deal. As long as you don't abuse drugs, you're not a hypocrite, you have the ability to tell them, hey, stop doing that. It's against the law and it's going to get in the way of your relationship with God. Love them enough, though, to reach out to them, to share God's love with them. See, Jesus does love us right where we are, but he loves us perfectly. So he's not willing to leave us there. But instead, what I do in my hypocrisy, I basically just take a big tarp and I throw it all over God's grace. People can't begin to see and fathom what God is doing because of what they see me doing. I myself, I know for a fact I have negated the message of salvation with my life when I get my big tarp out and throw it over people. And here's the deal. Honestly, probably you haven't seen me do this. But you know who has? My wife's seen me do this. (laughs) And she's real hard on me with this, and she needs to be. I have that list of people that I don't want to share the gospel with, or that list of people that really bug me to the point where I don't want to be Christ-like in front of them. Child molesters. Legalistic people. Cubs fans. It's, it's, (laughs) It's not a long list, but I have a list. And Christina catches it right away. And she'll say to me, you know, you act differently around that person. And she's right. And I know it. And I need help. Because my hypocrisy knows no bounds. So I need to apply this lesson that God teaches Peter here in Acts 11. I bet we all could stand to. So here's the application. It's on your outline. Who's your Cornelius? Who is that individual that rubs you the wrong way? That you think... I don't know if they're deserving of hearing the gospel. See, if we need to get out of God's way, like Peter admits in verse 17 there, there has to be somebody there in his way. There has to be somebody there as a target, somebody that God is desiring to reach with the good news. And so ask yourself, what kind of ministry could you engage in where you could start hanging out with somebody who looks different from you? Where you could start mentoring or discipling so that you could be on mission with God instead of just throwing a tarp over the message? You need to start serving maybe at a homeless shelter? Maybe you need to start volunteering with Jim Harper and his redeeming grace and go to the prisons, do prison ministry. What if you started working with Celebrate Recovery, helping addicts? What about if you just get your Bible and start meeting with somebody one-on-one and reading your Bible with somebody from your neighborhood, somebody at the grocery store, somebody at the gym? Or maybe you'd just rather sign up for another Bible study. And and let me be clear on this too, because that sounds like a low blow. And I don't want to be controversial. Hear me on this one. We need to be studying the Bible. That is the whole idea here. We need to be studying our Bibles for lots of reasons. Clearly, God has written this big old thick love letter to us. And in it, he's calling us to go. He's calling us to be disciples making disciples. We're supposed to be his witnesses in the world. And if we try and go out without having our Bible, without knowing what it says, that would be foolish. If we'd even go out under our own power, then God wouldn't get any of the glory that he deserves. We need to be in his word. 
If we're Christ followers, the reality is we have the indwelling power of the person of the Holy Spirit in us. Happens the moment we profess Christ as our Savior. Yet the clear call from God's Word is that we could, should keep being filled up. We're supposed to be continually filled. And so every Christ follower has access to exactly the same amount of the Holy Spirit. The question comes, how much of ourselves do we give to Him? So the reason we get filled, the reason we spend time in the Word, the reason we listen to sermons, the reason we go to Bible study is never so we can win a Bible trivia contest. That's not the idea. It's so that we'll be equipped to go. If our mission statement here at the chapel was just make Him known, (laughs) I guess we could go without knowing Him, but it's not. We're supposed to both know Him and make Him known. If we do either half, we're missing out. But sometimes, here's the reality, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, I think, man, if I do that first half really well, if I really, really know him, maybe I'll get a pass on the second half. But the the reality is, and and I want to show you this illustration, that's why we do the first half. I'm going to drink this. Pardon me. If we're the cup, if we're the cup of water, and the idea is we're supposed to be continually filled, and so we're getting continually filled through hanging out with the Lord and through prayer and through studying his word, but we're supposed to go out, and we're supposed to do ministry, we're supposed to reach out, then what we need to do is be filled to the point where we're overflowing. And so all the ministry we do, all the operation we do, does anybody need to go to the bathroom right now? It comes out of this overflow. It comes out of us being filled up, and then it just spilling out. What happens if we don't fill ourselves up? We fill ourselves up just a little bit, and then we stop. We say, okay, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to actually spread the gospel a little bit, and then I'm going to go out, and I'm going to serve a little bit, and then I'm going to go out and I'm actually going to go to church. And then I've got some other people in my neighborhood that I'd like to go out to. And then there's this guy I ran into at the gym, but I don't really want to share the gospel with him because I don't have anything left. So that's not the idea. We have to be in God's Word. We have to. You need to be in a Bible study. I don't care what it looks like. If it's you and one other person getting together, you need to be reading your Word. And the idea is we can do it the other way too. I'm going to borrow our little action figure and use him here. That's why I had him here. If our little action figure is here and he's us, and what happens is all we do is get filled up. And we just get filled up all the time to the point where that's what we're doing. But we never, ever go out and serve. We never go out and share the gospel. All we're doing is getting filled up. Well, what's going to happen to our hero down here? He's just going to end up drowning in the immense knowledge he has of the Bible. But he's never had the opportunity to go out and share it. Are we willing to go? There's a problem with reaching out to a lost and hurting, an unreached world. And I'm going to tell you right now, the problem is often us. There's a cartoon strip in the early 1950s called Pogo. And in the strip, the creator was dealing with a problem, the reality of pollution at the time. What a problem it was becoming. And he coined this phrase, and you've probably heard the phrase before, we've met the enemy and he is us. Now hear me on this one sitting here in this room today. Ephesians 6, chapter 12, 1 Peter 5, 18. They clearly explain who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan. We have a real enemy, an external enemy. But for Pogo, as he was talking about pollution, sometimes for the church, as we're talking about reaching out, being disciples, making disciples, joining God on mission, a lot of times the enemy is us. The enemy is internal. It's me throwing my big tarp of hypocrisy over something that God wants to shower his grace on. And real honestly, once we deal with that internal enemy we've created, then we can identify our real enemy in the world. 
Pollution's a huge problem. <laughs> but we're the ones causing it. It's true back then. It's true today. I'm a hypocrite. And my hypocrisy knows no bounds. And a lot of times it's me and my big tarp that's causing the problems. And I'm, I'm inhibiting God and the grace that he wants to shower on people. Yes, I believe that salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, is available for all. Except that person. Because they don't look like me. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And let me close with this. We've looked today at some obvious contradictions. A lot of them in my life. <laughs> We've asked the question, just how far does the gospel extend? Does it extend to the Gentiles even? Does it extend to sinners and tax collectors? To pornographers and alcoholics? To the homeless and those in prison? And we've seen the solution that God met Peter with in Acts chapter 11. That he's willing to meet with me and meet with Peter and meet with you every day. He'll engage us in our hypocrisy. And we figured out an application. It's that I need to get out of God's way. I need to quit throwing my big tarp of hypocrisy over people, anybody. And I need to get out of God's way because he might want to use me to share the good news. I need you to hold me accountable for that. Maybe it'll be with someone who does look like me. That's great. But maybe with somebody who doesn't. If we're willing to get out of God's way to be used by God for his glory, then his grace can and will abound. I guarantee you. And if we do that, we can be the church, not the building. We can be the church. We can be the individual Christ followers that God wants us to be. Praise team's going to play for a little bit, and I'll come back up and pray to close us out.